I am such a people person that it's all about the people for me. And then the rest of it is making sure that people around the table with me are a lot smarter than I am. And that, that's really how I approach investing. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is John Steinberg. John has been an active venture capitalist for over 30 years, serving as a general partner in three funds, managing over $250 million. As an angel investor, John has made over 250 investments. Currently, he is focused on building Agate Hound Fund, a fund for search funds. This asset class is relatively unknown, but has shown exceptional performance over the past 40 years. Additionally, he spends his spare time working on his vineyard in Argentina, Hand of God Wines. Welcome, John. Good to see you. Amazing to see you. <laughs> I know we were like kind of yakking about this before we started um, recording, but I have to say, this is selfishly like the best part of doing this podcast is I get to see people mostly that I know, but some that I don't know. And in your case, we've known each other for a very long time, but I very seldom get one-on-one -on -one time with you. So this is great. Yeah, I feel, however, I'm not going to get the questions I have for you, but that's fine. You can ask, you can ask as long as they're not like private or weird or too vulnerable. I'm just kidding. You can ask me anything. All right. Well, we'll see how it goes. Oh, yeah. You, start. you can ask me anything. Okay. I'm hitting you with rapid fire. Rapid uh, fire. Mr. Hand of God Wines, which I have to say, incredible wine, which I guess, which wine is your favorite wine? Of mine or in the world? In the world. You're a weird wine guy. So with, the, aside the, the, from yours. The, the standard answer is the wine I'm drinking right now. I'm sure this is not like the first person who's asked you this question, I'm guessing. No, but really like, no, but I don't really. know a lot about wine. Like what do you, yeah. wh what regions are the best? Obviously you love Argentina, but like where else? And are you red or white? Yeah. So no and no, it, I love wine. I love the culture of wine. I love the people in the wine industry and I'm not a golfer, but vineyards are a close substitute for beautiful places. I've never seen an ugly vineyard, right? This is true. Right. So, and I love, I've been, I plan trips around biking and hiking through vineyards and wine tasting. It's so fun. I love it. Can you please invite me? I want to go. You're invited. I love it. I'm in. I'm totally All right. in. Um, what is the best concert that you've ever attended? The first concert I ever attended, Bruce Springsteen, when I was 16 years old, the week that he was on the cover of both Time and Newsweek, if people still remember those magazines, when Omaha, Nebraska. And my wow. parents took me because they said, oh, here, this guy's coming to Omaha. We should go see him. And it changed my life. The boss. I the love boss, it. The boss. Four and a half hours. Like, who does that? Amazing. Yeah. He Those does. are good parents. 
Yeah. <laughs> so your parents sat through it for, I love that. So I know you've been um, an angel investor, venture capitalist. Now you're doing search funds, which I'm excited to learn more about and get into, but I guess what are three qualities that would describe you as an investor? Curious, curious and curious. I know that's not really the three you're looking for, but curious. And also I am such a people person that it's all about the people for me. And then the rest of it is making sure that people around the table with me are a lot smarter than I am. And yeah. that, that's really how I approach investing. That's super smart. But how do you assess what kind of smart are you talking about? Well, it depends on the situation and what we need and what needs to be, what gaps need to be filled in, right? When I was doing venture, very often, I'm not a technical person. So I knew I needed that help. And so that would be one thing. But there's so many different kinds of smart, Shauna, as you know, that I just want to make sure that those areas are covered in the whole deal. And that's one of the reasons I love search funds, which we'll talk about later, because it's completely different in an approach around the people that I love it so much. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to hear about it. I'm super curious also. Um, so are you still doing this ticket sub thing? Can you tell me for half a second? <laughs> <laughs> I had to throw it in there because I'm curious what's the ticket sub that you're most, like your most coveted ticket sub. So ticket stubs are a little different than an original piece of art, for example, because ticket stubs, some of the value is in the collections. So for example, if you had every Super Bowl ticket stub ever, that's a very valuable collection. If you had every World Series ticket stub ever, that's incredibly valuable. So, so what do you have? I have, for example, every home run that Mark Mc game from every home run that Mark McGuire hit when he hit 70 home runs and the same for Barry Bonds when he hit 73 home runs. As an example, I have some 50,000, it's all sports ticket stubs and I love Ticket stubs, and I'll tell you why. And by the way, uh, sports are a big part of my life and my, one of my passions. And it also has to do with the name of my fund in search funds, oh. which we'll talk about. But anyway, I love sports ticket stubs because, of course, they're being replaced, as we all know. And they are an original form of art in their own way. And they mark a moment. They mark a drama. They mark uh, bringing people together. And I don't think there's yeah. anything else quite like that. And, and so where do you keep these ticket subs and how much could you sell them for? And are you selling them? Well, no, I've never sold one. I've bought a lot. Um, and I don't honestly know the answer to that question. My daughter was like, Dad, <laughs> when you're gone, what are you going to do with those ticket steps? How much are they worth? <laughs> right? Are they worth? I mean, have you, do you yeah, know? I the assume answer? they're worth tens of thousands, if not more. Um, wow. And they're in a storage locker, which of course, probably just my monthly payment for all these years, you know, probably <laughs> yeah, net it's zero. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like a wash. That's so <laughs> funny. And so do you do you attend all of these or you just buy no, the no, ticket no, steps? No, 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 no. Because of course I didn't attend every game that Mark McGuire hit his home run. Oh, yeah, because yeah. Right, right, right. But, but I have people out there who collect these for me and I'll just get random mailings from people with That's like so a cool. stack of ticket steps. And I have people who, who I'm in their will if they pass away before me, I get all their ticket stubs. <laughs> That's so cool. That's awesome. What's, I know you're a world, you're a world traveler. What's uh, one of your favorite places that you've visited? Well, I'm kind of passionate over the top right now about Portugal and don't say everyone else is too. I, I've been doing it for a while. I'm 
working on my golden visa. I, you know, I, it's funny. When I was 12, Shauna, my mother put me on a train with my friend Kevin Sketter from Omaha, Nebraska, two of us, no adults, 12 years old, to take a train to New York City. And I think that's what set the seed of an idea that I should, I'm a traveler and the world's amazing. We should just go see it. So every year, I, first of all, I, I visit a different place, a new country. I've been to over 100 countries. And it is my jam. It is my heroin. It's my crack. I love it beyond anything I can imagine. And I feel such urgency. I got to go see all these incredible places. What's on your list? First of all, I have a, a teenage daughter. And there's so many places I want to go with her that I haven't been. The Galapagos, safaris in Africa, right? There's so many cool places. Um, yeah, there's plenty of places to go that feel super safe or super interesting. And actually, if I was completely retired and I had all the money in the world, you know, some people want to get their second home here and they're playing. What I want to do is get one of those condos on the luxury cruise liner and just travel the world going around. I 100% am on the same page. And I feel like, well, first of all, I'm nowhere near retiring, but I feel like that question starts to come on the back half and people right. are like, so what next? And I'm like, First of all, I love what I do and I'm young and like, why right. would I quit? But <laughs> if I Same. was crazy rich, I do not want a second home that I'm like kind of strapped down to the opposite. I want to travel the world, everywhere in the world. I'm the yeah. same way. And then when I was uh, in college, my parents were kind enough to let me go on semester at sea where you literally go around the world, which is a crazy concept, that. right? I love that. And again, yeah. it just, once again, just lit the fire. It fueled yeah. me. Yeah. So if you, I feel like you are famous, but if you could be famous for something, you really, I'm telling you, you're everywhere and you like know everybody and you're the ultimate connector. And, um, but if you were famous for like being, you said sports are important, famous athlete, farm, famous um, artist, famous rock star, what would you be famous for? I really wish it was doing good in the world. Honestly, I mean, It'd be great if I was a great artist. I think Banksy, whoever Banksy is, I love that he touches people's lives in the way he, she, whoever it is, does. And it brings, I mean, it's amazing how many times I see a Banksy and think how relevant it is today, what the messaging is, how it makes me smile, how it makes me think, it provokes. If I could do something like that, to me, that would be the ultimate. Yeah, I love that. Love that. And what is your, this is like a want, want, but what's your biggest um, pet peeve? Intolerance. Intolerance. Uh, people who hold on to negative negativity, people who make judgments about people, people who can't let go of past hurts. It's I just, the world is so divided right now. It's, we're not listening to each other. We're putting up walls. That That is, that's it. Thank you for saying that. I love it. Um, okay. If there was a book written about your life, what would it be called? Really? <laughs> that's it would what just it would be, be called really? Yeah. <laughs> that's how, that's, so that's how every chapter would end. It would tell the story and then we'd go, really? <laughs> that's so funny. Lots of, lots of question marks. Yeah, lots of questions. So tell me, I mean, if I hadn't known, I mean, I don't think, and I've known you for over 10 years and I don't think I ever knew that you were from Nebraska. 
like until where do until I researched you for this, I did my little homework assignment. Like, tell me more about that childhood and your parents and like, how did they end up in Nebraska? Mayberry RFD. You know, we, I grew up in as middle class as middle classes could be walked literally. I know it sounds so cliche, but I walked in the snow a mile to school. Um, and it was great. And my parents would say, you know, dinner's at six and come back when you're done playing in the neighborhood. And we left the keys in the car in the ignition and the doors were open and it was fantastic. I mean, how, honestly, how things have I, changed. I know. Oh my gosh. But I feel super connected to Omaha for me, besides just having a great childhood is I think one of my joys in life is under the radar discovery. And Omaha is unbelievably sophisticated. People mm. are, it's actually very interesting. There's great art galleries there. There's a really cool downtown. The people are really sophisticated. There's more than meets the eye. And, interesting. And when, if you haven't been, by the way, I'll, I I'll haven't be there been. And, oh my gosh, let's go. Here, I'm, I'm okay. making this offer right now. We're going, we're going so many places already. This is I great. Know. We're going to the Berkshire meeting in next May because Charlie Munger will be a hundred and, and let's hope he's still there. And it's an, if you haven't been, it's an unbelievably inspiring weekend. So back to Omaha, but, and Omaha is a place I go back to and feel at home. And I still have family there. And, you know, it was growing up, it was easy and simple and people were kind. And my life was pretty straightforward. I would, I was a tennis player and it's literally my mom would drop me off with 10 other kids at the tennis courts and we'd spend the whole day there. And we got, it was our posse. And my dad had some garden apartments. They were actually now garden apartments are everywhere, but they were kind of a new thing back then. And I was picking weeds at eight years old and earning my dollar an hour. And I had my first job in the bookstore in the middle of the mall at Crossroads, you know, which oh, was a block away. And what did you want to be when you were little? Did you have a sense of like, when I'm big, I'm going to be X, Y, Z? Of course, when I was nine. So I had, I grew up being really short and it wasn't until eighth grade that I grew like nine inches. You know, I was, what I was going to say, I was really fast. And I, you know, there was, we had this game, kill the man with the football and I was like, sure, I was going to be the next Gale Sayers. Your audience won't know who the Gale Sayers is. But no, I was, we, I, my parents were pretty entrepreneurial. No, they were very entrepreneurial. And I had no idea what I was going to be, but I knew it was going to be something that I was going to create somehow. Yeah. And I'm guessing you were probably uh, pretty studious, Stanford. Like, and how did you decide, um, you know, who was guiding you through those types of decisions? Like back then, it was so different. Okay, you want you want the single probably biggest moment in my academic advancement was in sure. third grade. Third grade, and okay. it's when so in kindergarten in Omaha, the way there were four levels of class of class for for any grade, kind of the not so smart and the smart, and that was all determined by a test they gave us in kindergarten where you had to draw a human. And I can't draw to save my life. So I was put in the low class and I was completely bored and I was acting out and I was a class clown. 
And finally, my mother went to the school and said, put him in the first class. This is crazy. And that changed everything. And then I completed. Wow. But that's I mean, awesome. that's a pretty amazing that she saw it and did something about it. Yes, absolutely. And you talked about this posse at the at the tennis club playing tennis. Um, and Not tennis like club, a... let me clear, honey. We didn't, okay. no club. It was the public courts. <laughs> okay, your, your posse at the public courts. Are you still in touch with these people? And oh, yeah. would they say like, this is the same John from like fifth grade? Absolutely. Absolutely. What has what has changed as far as like, not saying like, have you changed with money and success, but more like, what has changed as far as your interests or your, um, your drive, your values, like anything changed since then? Or are you like, kind of like, this is who I am and how I've always been? Well, I hope I'm a little bit wiser and a little bit more mature and a little more thoughtful and a little less selfish and and you know, before the word growth mindset was coined, I think I've just always had that. And I don't care if I'm 60, 80, whatever age, I hope I'm still learning and I hope I'm still growing and I hope I'm still being a better person. Because that, that in the end, for my mom instilled that in us and that's as core as it gets for me. So yeah. I think they would say, I think they would say I'm pretty much the same guy yeah um, and who's but, who's the us you have siblings yeah so i'm the youngest of four uh oh yeah and the baby i and i have a, a brother in st louis who's been quite successful monetarily and i have a sister who's an occupational therapist in omaha who was very successful in her career and i have a a really warm big-hearted brother in lincoln nebraska and love that we're all quite different though. And who, who influenced you as a kid? Was it obviously all your siblings, your parents? Did you have any mentors or teachers that saw something in you? Okay, another mother story. My mother, uh, she was not afraid to do things outside the box. And I think I get a lot of it from her. My, my dad passed away when I was pretty young. And so she had to take on a lot with four kids. But I remember in fourth grade, she went to my homeroom teacher and said, we're traveling. Would it be okay if John lived at your house for a week? Like, <laughs> who does that? Does the and, teacher say yes? Yeah, oh, yeah. And then I did it in fifth grade. I did it in sixth grade. And, of course, people hate it. The other students were like, who is this guy? He's like the teacher's pet staying at their houses. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, she, got it, she had to get it done. She had to get it handled. Well, she did something right. And then you went to Stanford. Were you just like really studious? Like who told you about Stanford versus some other school closer? Well, I, I'm a little bit over the top when it comes to probably doing too much. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. I was one of those kids that before the common app, right? You can now apply to a bunch of schools. Back then you actually had to hand write or type and the questions were different. I applied to 13 different schools, which was insane. I don't know why I did that. Uh, honestly, I remember getting the Yale Insider Guide to Colleges and I was like, oh, that one looks good. And that one looks pretty good. And that you're having, you were having FOMO just the same way as you go to like six events a night. You're like, well, I don't want to miss out. I mean, what if I like Stanford? What if I like <laughs> right. Yale? Absolutely. And, and, you know, Stanford wasn't Stanford then. It wasn't the name that it is. It didn't have the same cachet. Of course it was a good school, but, but it didn't, I didn't think, oh, 
I got in amazing, right? I was happy. It's like, great. But yeah. um, I really wanted to get away from Omaha, but not because I wanted to get away from Omaha, because I wanted to get away and see the rest of the United States or see a different part, just like the travel thing, right? Yeah. And so it was either going to be East Coast or West Coast. It didn't really matter that much to me. And so talk about how life sends you in directions. I was only one of two white people who asked, selected, signed up for the black theme house at Stanford as a freshman. And I didn't do it for any special reason other than I thought I only had a few black people in a, my high school class of 800. That'll be interesting. And I mean, nobody asked to do this. Actually, ironically, one other person asked and they were white and they were from Nebraska and we did not know each other, which is maybe says something about Nebraska. Um, but th that selection changed my life and it ultimately led to me being at Microsoft. So tell me, tell me more about that. What, do you, what, what was the house exactly? Well, so they had theme houses. They had the Hispanic theme house and the Asian theme house and different theme houses, right? Did they right? still have that? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. It's called Ujamaa. In fact, I was just back from my reunion less than three weeks ago, and I had dinner with a bunch of friends from Ujamaa. We all get together and still talk and see each other. And it was fantastic, but it was like a completely different country from based it's, on my It's experience. men and women in this yeah, house? Yeah, yeah, And so 50 how many, percent, pe 50 how many people are in it? I think there were 100. Total? 100 people, 50% black, 50% anything white. else or white? Yeah, but okay. mostly white. No, but everything else. Yeah. Rest wow. of world. Yeah. Yeah. You amazing. were trying to like open up your world to meet yeah. different people. So I don't know why that is that I do that, but I'm not, but that's the traveler in me. Right. Yeah. And I just thought, well, I'm that's going your, to college. the humanist in you. Yeah, for right. sure. Right. How did you decide to study econ and Asian studies? Were you planning on? Honestly, here we go again with. I probably had seven majors before I decided on econ. And and um, I ultimately decided on econ, and I'll tell you, this is bearing the truth. All the other majors were too damn hard. And so yeah. I'm like, wait, there's a bunch of jocks in econ, and I know that I can still do well in this and still party with my friends. Because most of my friends were like pre-med, and I, if I had done that, I would never have been part. I would never have had the social side. That would have been pre-med was like having a sport. Yeah, yes. all-consuming. Oh, my all-consuming, right? And so I figured out uh, that I could do econ and be with them. Well, how did you decide also Asian studies? Like, what were you? Oh, what? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, gosh, you're asking good questions. But when I was 13, someone gave me a book that actually had a profound impact on me. And I don't know if everybody will remember this book, but it was called Journey to Ixtilan. You know that book? Carlos I Castaneda? Carlos Castaneda, the Yaqui way, Yaqui being an Indian tribe, a Mexican Indian tribe, as I remember. Anyway, it was about, it's gonna sound bad, but it was about shamanistic activities, which included a lot of peyote. And I thought, this is so interesting. What a different view of the world this is. And as I started going down the path of learning about different cultures and different shamanistic rituals, I got very into Buddhism. 
and Buddhism took me to Asian studies. Yes, I was very oh. interested in China and interested in all things around Asia, but that's the, that was my gateway from a book at age 13. Wow, fascinating. So you're, it's interesting. So you're studying uh, econ, Asian studies, and is anybody kind of saying, were you working through college or like, what were you thinking is? I always had a job. That was the thing. I always had to have a job. And so my job was to be an RA. That's, I just figured out that was the best way to have a double and get paid and fulfill my requirement to my own parents to have a job because Stanford was super expensive and they were super oh, yeah. generous and we didn't have a lot of scholarship money. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to work for sure. So you kept this RA job, but, um, you know, some of these, I guess, you know, investment banks and management consulting firms back in those days were the ones that like kind of went on campus and did recruiting. What was your game plan and what was, you know, you, I'm, I'm researching you and I'm thinking, okay, so he starts in tech, then he gets into <laughs> venture now he's, and he's got a vineyard. Like you, you're kind of touching a lot of different things. And as a, as a parent, I'm sure that you talked to your daughter about this. None of us knew what the hell, at least I didn't know what the hell I was no going to do. Unless you're no like way. thinking I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to medical school. Right. You just kind of like, it's this like, especially with our personalities, it's just people that you meet. So what led to your first job out of school and what was it? First of all, I got into business school from undergrad and they were kind enough to say, you can come now or come in two years. And they generally said two years is better because then you have some experience to play off of for the context of the classes, Right. And so once again, I did, I did what I always seem to do, which is where else haven't I lived? So my first job, real job, well, my first job was a volunteer, like a Peace Corps volunteer in Asia. So I lived in Taiwan, but when I got a more normal quote unquote job, I came back and I said, I've never been in Dallas. I guess I'll just find a job in Dallas. And so I found a job in Dallas and lived in Dallas for a year, which was different and interesting. But then, but then, as I said, they allowed me to come back to business school. And I remember going to the library back then and getting every entrepreneur magazine, Fortune, Forbes, Inc., Entrepreneur, and ripping out pages of interesting people. Like I did this. I had files that were this thick. I was like, I'm going to, that person seems, that is so interesting. And so that's, really how I was forming my ideas. And over time, because I was in Palo Alto and because I'm looking at entrepreneurs, I'm learning about venture capital. And my father was a real estate guy and I love real estate and I still love real estate. And Joel, we talked about earlier, mutual friend, still, still invest in real estate, but I was learning about venture capital. And so I thought, that's really what I wanna do. And then, my other white friend from Ujamaa said, why don't you come to Seattle where he was working and we'll interview you and see if you like it. And if you do, there's a little software company named Microsoft and we'll hire you. And I thought, it's a free trip to Seattle. I've never been to Seattle, another following my theme of going new places and had the most intense, wonderful, smart interviews I'd ever experienced in my life. And, and they were hard cases and I liked digging in with them and kind of arguing about it and trying to figure things out. And I thought, what's the worst that can happen? I'll do this job and 
if it doesn't work out. And I always view life. That's a that's a major mode of thinking for me. What's the worst that can happen? Right? I feel very comfortable. I'm gonna land somewhere. And if you take that view, then everything's open to you, right? Hundred percent. That's so powerful. I love that. And so I went to Microsoft and Within my first couple of weeks, I went to a venture capitalist in Seattle, Woody Howes, and, and there weren't that many venture capitalists back then. And I said, Woody, I think what I really want to do is venture. And he said, I want you to work somewhere for three to five years where you have to actually implement things, see that they work, hire and fire. And then go and do venture because you'll be and make so you a much, much better. better investor. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so that was kind of the path. And after right around five years, I went back to Woody and said, okay, I took your advice. I'm going to go figure this thing out and do venture. So timeline wise, not that we need to get too into this, but I'm just like now personally curious. So you did Microsoft and then Stanford MBA? No, no. The, the other way around. You flipped it. Okay. So then you did the Microsoft, but a lot of people just, you know, they get those golden handcuffs at Microsoft. And um, I mean, I meet with people as a recruiter all the time who are, right. you know, 20 years in, whatever it is, and they kind of can't leave. And there is that little window. Um, did you just, you just knew like, this was my game plan. I'm going to go back to Woody. Yeah. I'm not a good big company person. I don't yeah. really love the rules. I don't really love a lot of structure. Yeah. I knew that. Interesting. I knew that. How would you describe that culture? You didn't have a ton to compare it to, but you know, obviously you've been in this ecosystem tenacious. in Seattle. Tenacious, tenacious culture. Smart, competitive. They hired for that. That's what mm. they well, you know, I knew nothing about tech. I knew nothing about marketing, really. Mm -hmm. But they Is that what you was, did there? Marketing? Yeah. Yeah. We we created the corporate marketing group. We created a lot of things that just they needed the infrastructure for this. It was very collegial. You felt like it was almost a fraternity. Of course, there were some women, not that many, to be honest, but there were some. But it was like hardcore. We're all on the same page. We're, we're, we're going after. We're going after WordPerfect. We're going after Lotus 1, 2, 3. We're going after Nova. Oh, my God. Remember WordPerfect and Lotus? Yeah, yeah of course. Old school. Course. Old school. Interesting. And so if you had to, I'm guessing that you're the kind of person who doesn't look back and say coulda, shoulda, whatever, no. you know. I'm I'm more just curious though, if you had to go back and talk to your younger self, undergrad at Stanford, is there anything that you would have done differently or that you wish somebody had told you about those first, you know, few years, jobs? Would you get an MBA again? Yeah, I think getting an MBA if you if you go to a good school, and I do think it matters, to be honest, because I just had my reunion for business school as well. It just happened to coincide that they both were this year. It's the people. I'm still inspired by my classmates and we're still close. And that we did this thing called glimpses where everybody, eight different people gave a 10 minute talk and extraordinary journeys and extraordinary people. And people felt like this was the best one yet. And so, you know, one of the, my core themes in life is there's two types of people, those that give you energy and those that suck energy. Like Celestine and Prophecy. Did you read that book? I did. Yes. I so, love that book. Yeah. And so I just get so much energy out of the people I met in business school. And I'm inspired. I still am inspired. So tell me about tell me about your early days of as a venture capitalist. I know that, you know, you've invested in over 400 companies, lots of 
I mean, I'm reading this. I'm like Seagate, Spinner, LiveBid, Infospace, Cafe Press, Slunk, Avalara, DocuSign, crazy, Facebook. Um, <laughs> what what lens do you look at, and what was your very first investment that you made? Well, so I there wasn't a venture for, a firm up here that was going to hire me. So <clears throat> I started by basically finding deals and then uh, pitching them to individual investors and doing one-offs. And they were just local deals. And honestly, I'm not sure I remember the very first one we did. That's a great question. I'd have to go back. Well, what was the first win? <laughs> I guess you might remember that one. The first one that yeah, you Well, like, the oh. first real win was, was Spinner, which was sold to AOL. That was a really good outcome. And I'm still in touch with the founders. And, and it was really, it was such a great concept because they literally had a bunch of turntables and they were broadcasting them on the web. It was, like, <laughs> it was yeah, so old, old school. Old school. Yeah, so old school. But uh, I started by doing these one-offs. And after a while, people said, you know, okay, stop coming here. We get what you're doing. Why don't you aggregate, put a fund together, and then and we'll invest. And and I did a little fund, and then I did a little fund two, and then I was part of a bigger fund for fund three. And it, it was amazing. I mean, but it's so different than it is today back then because there just weren't that many people doing it. Yeah. And everybody knew everybody. And Sand Hill Road was the place. And my you know, I always think about how can I differentiate myself in the ecosystem, right? I'm never going to be smarter than everyone else. I'm, I'll work as hard as anyone else. But how do I create a way to be adding value uniquely? And so my pitch back then was pretty straightforward. Microsoft mattered to Sand Hill Road and to Silicon Valley in a way that is different than it is today. And so I would say, I'm gonna be your source of always either helping you partner or getting competitive information or figuring out that relationship. And I could do that uniquely because I was there for five years. And so I would get into deals because I would say that. And I wasn't very big, so I wasn't taking too much of the deal. So people let me into some really interesting deals. But I had to figure out what my positioning was. What your positioning was going to be. And so when you are investing, whether it's like through the fund or just as an angel investor, are you more like um, like looking at a bunch of data or are you more gut or team or, I, you know, total addressable market? Like what criterion are you looking at when you're looking at a deal? Yeah, I think I get this question comes up almost every time. And. I think in the beginning, I was more about the data. Um, and today I'm probably more about the gut and the feel and the people and who else is around the table. And, you know, as you know, Shauna, very rarely, less than 1% of the time, do these deals ever go from point A to point B as is presented in the business plan. So you gotta have people that can rally the troops around any kind of pivot there might be, and people who can, of course, see the pivot and appropriately do the pivot, mm -hmm. uh, whatever whatever that looks like, right? And so then, what and, what attributes would those be? If you said there's three attributes that are like absolutes in an entrepreneur, 
Well, I don't think, I think sales is always under, undervalued. You're always selling, right? You're always selling, whether you're selling to your own team, whether you're selling an idea internally, whether you're selling to get a new hire, whether you're selling to customers. So I think that I, I want to know that people can do that and do it effectively. Mm -hmm. So I want people, besides being able to sell, I want people uh, to really, and I think Jeff Bezos probably really instilled the idea better than anyone. Customer obsession, really understanding product market fit, really understanding how to delight. Like what is it that you're doing that is gonna create such value and delight for the customer? And how much of an obsession do you have with that? Because mm -hmm. if someone comes in and says, oh, the market's really big and the market needs this, I just wanna know how they know it. There's very yeah. few people, there's just almost nobody besides a Steve Jobs that could see around the corner. So I really, it's important for me to kind of get in the head of someone to really understand where the idea is coming from and how is it being tested in their own mind and what's the rigor behind that. So I think those yeah. two things are really important. I can that totally makes sense. What about, what about experience? Like, have they done this before? Well, <laughs> we are gonna talk about search funds and I don't value experience as much. Certainly the record of second time entrepreneurs, I think outperforms, um, but there's plenty of really smart people in the world that can pull this yeah. off. And I, I bias towards that because I get excited about working <clears throat> pardon me, working with them even more. Mm -hmm. um, but sure, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that if someone's been successful once and they come in with an interesting idea, they, they get points for that in, in my yeah. evaluation, of course. Yeah. Well, that's just, yeah, very, very that's just natural. Sense. Right. That's just natural. Yeah. Is there a story of a startup that you've invested in or that you didn't invest in? Mm -hmm. I, I think I know one that you didn't invest in that you've told me yeah. about. But is, yeah. <laughs> is there, is, uh, let's just talk about the ones that you did. Is there a story about, a startup that you've invested in that's been particularly either memorable or impactful? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's funny. I, I feel like I once said to uh, a mentor of mine, you know, how do you know at the beginning what's going to be successful? And, you know, the, the line that I always say is, you, you know, a, a venture capitalist's favorite deal is the last deal they did. And it's because everyone loves the new, they're excited about it. And it's amazing how many times I've been surprised both, both ways, like a deal mm. that I thought was certainly gonna work. Um, but one of my favorite deals uh, is a very quiet deal uh, locally. And it's a guy that most people don't know, but he, he has for 30 years just been an incredibly successful operator who runs cable companies oh. and, mo and most people don't even know about him and he's a good guy he's smart he knows how to run teams he's been incredibly successful and i just it's so fun to see him execute and execute steady 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 and he he sees it in a way others don't and that's been fun to be part of his journey uh, and I'm grateful for having been part of that. So that that's yeah. one of my favorites of all time. Yeah, and how, how do you feel like the scene? I know you mentioned that things are different now. Yeah. How has the tech scene 
yeah. evolved over the years since Boy, um, since you it's, landed it's ever different. Scene. I mean, everybody's a venture capitalist today, right? It's <laughs> kind of crazy. And yeah. I literally remember trying to explain to my mother, hey, I'm going to go to this thing called venture capital. And I'm not sure she ever really got it. Uh, and when I went out to sell it, people didn't even know what venture capital meant, right? Yeah. Now, of course, same with, same with recruiting. Knows. I've been in recruiting next year's 30 years. And people are like, recruiting, like for the army? I'm like, no, recruiting <laughs> for companies, you know, or just like a headhunter. People are like, what's that? And now everyone's a recruiter. Everyone's a headhunter. And, and everyone's you know? a recruiter, right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and so what's happened, what I've come to realize is with venture, it's, a mis it's often a misalignment of interests. And mm. I'll give you one small example of that. I, I've done a fair amount of angel investing. As an angel investor, you take the most risk. And yet, once it goes institutional, you, they don't care about you. Yeah, you get diluted right. and you're out. You get yeah. diluted or crammed down or pushed out. or, <clears throat> And yet, you took all the risk. That's not an alignment of interest, okay? Or what about the case in venture when a company has raised a bunch of money and the company has been run into the ground, they've lost all the money, everyone has been fired except the founder or CEO who they say, we'll pay you a couple million dollars if you just stay on to see this thing to its final exit. Wait, what? That doesn't seem like alignment of interest. So I'm always feeling like I don't know that venture is the best risk reward outcome that I can do. And because it's gotten noisier and because there's more investors and because it's gotten faster and everything is, hey, take it now or see you later. I just don't like playing in the sandbox as much as I It totally to. makes sense. I was going to ask you because, you know, <clears throat> I've had a lot of exposure in different ways to venture and, um, a lot of friends are in venture and like incredible human beings, but just like anything, you know, in recruiting, there can be reputations of like, ugh, a recruiter, you know, same type of thing right, with venture, course. like, oh, they're the guy that's going to blah, blah, blah. Like, and it so does not align with who you are, who I am, like your personal values. Right. And at this stage, well, first of all, you got into search funds, which is super freaking cool, but also you have a position of life of like, you know what? I want to really love and be passionate about what I'm doing and feel good about it. And so that's great that you, um, you know, have stayed curious and stayed engaged and connected to yourself enough to know, like, I'm going toward this now. Yeah, I would say it is extremely important for me to be doing things that more align with my values and, and, and also to add value. And to really feel mm -hmm. like it, what we talked about earlier is where, where can I, where can I complement the rest of the people around the table? And, and I just wasn't feeling that I was very good at that anymore for a variety of reasons, including when I started doing venture capital, it was a serial rollout of new technologies. Today, it's a tidal wave of new technologies. There's 25 new technologies. I, I just simply, I'm not smart enough to do it. And, and, and I can't keep up and I'm not gonna have the same energy. I'm not gonna have the same learning. And, and on the other side, the founders aren't very interested in hearing what I have to say. Honestly, it's a different mindset. There's a certain arrogance almost. And so mm. 
That's too bad. That's interesting. It's really interesting. I know so many people who 55 to 65 who are so smart, who they're not being asked for their opinion. It's as if their wisdom. crazy. Believe me, this is true. Now, if we get to search funds, that is not the case. I want to know about search funds. And I know it's um, Agate Hound. I would need to know, like, how do you come up with the name is the first question. And the second question is, what is a search fund? All right. Uh, Well, let me say what a search fund is first. So a search fund was invented at Stanford and Harvard. And it's a terrible name because it's not a fund. And now they call it ETA or entrepreneurship through acquisition. And it is a formal class taught Two MBAs, in fact, it's one of the most popular and there's often wait lists now, but that's only happened in the last few years, whereby it teaches an MBA how to search for, acquire, and run a small business. So a two to $5 million EBITDA business. And it could be anything from HVAC to gutter cleaning, to arborists, to street cleaning, to dental clinics, to airplane parts, services, it's it's a very that they want to ex- that the, the founder might want to exit, or they can't scale it themselves. Both, both, okay. right? But it's successful, so it's already successful. The criteria is it has to have at least three years of con- of consecutive years of growing EBITDA profits, and where what's more likely than they can't scale at it is more likely. And YPO is full of these companies, actually, that it's successful. And that person is taking out a couple million bucks a year. And they're very happy with the way things are going. But they're 65 or 70. The kids, as you know, no longer want to take over family businesses in the same way they used to. And so they're looking for an exit. And because it's on the lower market of private equity, there's not, it's not a, it's a tough market. There aren't as many buyers. What are, the, so, what are the multiples typically? Yeah, so it's generally speaking, and there's a whole, there's a great study to look at this. Uh, the Stanford Primer on Search Funds, hi, hi, if anyone's interested, it's really well done. It was invented at Stanford Harvard. Anyway, to answer your question, it's 4X EBITDA. And the magic of that is, if you can grow it to where the level of private equity players, the funds, the larger funds buy it, they'll buy it for seven to 10 X EBITDA. So not only are you organically growing a company, but you're also getting a multiple expansion in there as well. And okay, so you- hold on, hold on. Cause I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm not selling my company, but I'm listening through that perspective so that I can really understand it. So um, pretend I'm doing 2 million EBITDA and then it's 3 million next year, 4 million the year after yeah. that. You're saying I could sell it for four times EBITDA, but then what's the seven part? Yeah, so the if a searcher buys it at the four times, they mm-hmm. hope to grow it to say eight or nine or 10 to, to sell it to the funds. There are just not very many PE funds at this level. It's too small for the mm. funds, but there's a so lot does the of- owner, the original owner stays on until that happens? No, generally no. There's a transition of one to three years. Um, and there's an earnout associated with its continuing to work. But the MBA from Harvard, Stanford, or other schools takes over to run the company. I so see. And, and how so much experience do these MBAs No, they don't have a have. ton. They don't. 
That's the amazing thing. And everyone always says, how could they possibly do it? And that's the magic. And the magic is several, it's a playbook and it's, it's, it's a nuanced answer, but it's because unlike venture, and I'm going to compare a lot, there's complete alignment in search funds. Remember we were talking about alignment here. You have not a bunch of rounds of financing. When you have a bunch of rounds of financing, the last money Dilution, in, yeah. right? So you don't have that. There's usually one round. Secondly, the people who are teaching the playbook at Stanford, Harvard, MIT, blah, 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 are also investing in their students. They're also coaching and mentoring. And the cap table is 10 to 12 investors who have been doing this for 20 or 30 years who all coach and mentor <clears throat> and who roll up their sleeves and are talking. And here is where we talked about the 60 year old giving advice. They want advice because they know they haven't run something like this before. And the investors are mostly made up of people who have successfully run a company and who are now investing in this. So it's like a YPO group or a mentor or like Vistage for that MBA student. Fascinating. And so is it true that it typically is like in the 35% range of IRR? Yeah. So the, the 40 year return is net 36%. Wow. Over 40 years. And nobody's heard about this. And it's because it is because this playbook, it is because of the mentoring, it is because you're buying below the radar. <clears throat> And it's going to continue because we have this baby boomer, what's called the silver tsunami of all these people who have to exit their companies. Mm -hmm. I have a couple in mind, and this, this is what's coming to mind. It's a well-run well business in that it's like, it's always been done this way. We know how it's run, but there's not um, a whole bunch of information um, that's really transparent. Right. It's all right. like in the mind of the owner. Like I'm just thinking of some seasoned owners who might run a 30, $40 million business. Right. Um, but, but you know, one show. of the kids, it's sausage. It's, it's, but it's a shit show. And so right. what mm. type of analysis or assessment of the culture of the systems of the processes and all of that, the, the customer right. list and <clears throat> goes into that before. All of that goes into that. There is a whole playbook, and I keep using that word, around due diligence and quality of earnings and who you talk to and how you get the seller to be part of the transition. There, this is all a playbook. There's hundreds and hundreds of these deals that have been done, and they're just taking best practices. Now, to be fair, it doesn't always work, but it works more times than it doesn't. And it's not like venture where it's just an idea on the back of an envelope and evaluation that makes zero cents. Okay. So yeah. if I'm coming in and I'm investing in the searcher, how many different companies or how many different MBAs am I getting yeah. like a piece of like what I'm putting in air quotes? Yeah, no, no, no. So, so generally speaking, each MBA searcher, and it can be two, it can be a team of two is going to raise their little pool of capital to pay themselves enough for up to two years searching to acquire. So they may pay themselves 150K and they've got it from 10 or 12 investors. And if they don't find a company to acquire in two years, they're out. And what happens to the money? It's lost. 
but it's a small amount. It's a it's a option. So I'm gonna I'm gonna invest in searcher A and Sally. And Sally, I put in fifty thousand dollars. If Sally finds something to acquire, Sally comes back to me because I was in the original and says, "Would you like to put a million dollars in this?" So I've had the best interview you can imagine for two years, unlike venture, because I've been talking to Sally every couple of weeks. Sally's smart. Sally's really does what she says. She's coachable. Like I've learned about Sally. So not only am I now knowledgeable about the deal, I'm really knowledgeable about the entrepreneur. But this I is you, that. the managing director of Agathound. This isn't me, the investor in Agathound. So uh, this is going to get slightly confusing. So I'm going to, if you don't get it, tell me. Search fund's a bad name. It's not a fund. So let's call them searchers. So there are funds that invest in searchers. The best funds also teach the course. So not okay. only, so they're seeing their best students, they're investing in some of their best students. Then they have this two years where they're acquiring. So they really know the student. Okay. Yes. So that fund invests in 25 searchers. Okay. A third of those will never acquire. So maybe they'll invest. So maybe there'll be 17 acquisitions in those 25. You still following me? Mm -hmm. And maybe the fund says, I like 15 of those 17. I didn't really like Sally. I didn't really like that acquisition. I'm not going to do all of them. So that fund, we'll call it fund A, has 15 acquisitions in the fund because they invested in 25 searchers from Stanford, yes. Harvard, MIT. Okay. Agate Hound. We're investing in the funds that invest in the searchers. I see. So you're like the connector to the searchers, to the funds of the searchers. The, right. We're the fund yes. of funds because you're the fund what, of funds. Yes. What I figured out is that the asset class has had these outsized returns. Mm. And by the way, when I say outsized, 35% compared to PE, which has been around 15%. So it's oh, not yeah. a little bit. And if, if you understand the magic of compounded interest, that is a massive difference in outcome a few years ago. Yes, out. yes. How long have you been doing it? The guy who invented search funds was my professor at Stanford. He's an advisor wow. and mentor to me now. And I've been investing for five years, but I started this fund just recently. Uh, and I love it. In the last couple of weeks, I've been to the Stanford Search Fund Conference. I was this Saturday, I was at the Harvard Search Fund Conference. And tomorrow at 6 a.m., I'm going to the Chicago Booth Northwestern Search Fund Conference. And what's amazing is 11 years ago, two schools taught search, Stanford and Harvard. And now 25 business schools in America teach search. And now these search fund conferences, Harvard had 1,000 people and there was a wait list, sold out. Stanford, 600, sold out. I mean, it's 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 a thing and it's having a moment and you are going to hear a lot about it. And it's so fun. I, I'm not surprised that you're right at the forefront of it. And I'm guessing there are competitors. Well, there's more money coming in. There's more funds. There's no other fund of funds that I'm aware That's of. That's what I'm guessing. Are there other fund of funds? Not yet. And and because and, we're a small fund, it's, nobody would really want to do this. It's perfect for me where I am in my life, but it's not, we're not going to get a bunch of fees. I'm only going to do well if the asset class does well, but I'm supremely confident in that and I'm backing it up. I think I'll be the largest investor in my own fund, but because it's done it for 40 years 
And because mm-hmm. the playbook is so good. And what I love about it, one other point, is no faster way to be a CEO than buy a company. And guess what? For people who are underrepresented, women, people of color, no glass ceiling. Yeah. Oh, it sounds, I, you're giving me chills just hearing about it. It's so exciting and so cool. Is there anything else that you can tell us about this asset class? Because you know, most of, maybe people listening have heard of it, but um, why is it such an unknown asset class? And what can Honestly, like others that are listening do to kind of learn more? Great questions. So it's been unknown because the people who have been investing in it, I don't think they would say it this way, but the truth is it was an insider's game. It felt like Sand Hill Road 40 years ago when literally that, if you wanted to do venture. But yeah, you can't get in on these deals. Yeah, can't get in because you're not in the club. And yeah. now Interesting. more and more funds are being formed. So the asset class is maturing to the point where a fund of funds makes sense. And if you want to find out more about it, uh, feel free to go to agathound.fund. I have a resource page or Google or Bing. We're in Seattle, mm-hmm. I'll say Bing. Uh, search funds or ETA, Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition. Stanford's got several papers on it. You're going to hear more about it. And it's and for people, by the way, I'm investing in the traditional search fund model, which is MBA straight out of business school. But there's a bunch of various, there's incubators and accelerators. I have a friend who is mid-career who's thinking about going to do this and acquiring a company. It's really cool. I think it's- I'm excited. <laughs> well, I can tell, and you're making me excited. Tell me a little bit more about Hand of God Wines. I, I love your wine. Um, is that just a passion thing or is that like a business that you're like spending a ton of time on? It's 17 years. I know, 17.8 years. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so, you know, it was one of those moments where, you know, what happened, I turned left at Albuquerque. I, I just went down to Argentina and fell in love with, the beauty of this place. I had a moment, honestly, I had a moment where I walked onto what became my vineyard and I felt something. I don't know if you've ever had that moment in life. I've had it a couple of times. And it was like, I'm, I need to buy this land and I need to do something on this land. And I am from Nebraska. So the farming aspect of it uh, resonated with me. And my partner, Santiago, is an amazing winemaker. And it was a checkbox item I always wanted to do. And I don't know where it goes from here. You know, it's a really brutally hard business. And yes. I like to compare, I actually like to compare the wine business. You know, if you, do, if you do business school, if you go to business school, they talk about business case models, business right models. And wine may be the worst business model I've ever encountered <laughs> in my life. Yeah, you're like, let's not do that. No, no, seriously. Like people say to me all the time, I really want to get in the wine business. And I think to myself, Go buy a company, do a search, make a lot of money and drink great wine. Because search is the single best business model I've ever seen. So hopefully I've learned something over here. I've got a lot of great wine. I love the, I have a, a really great community. As you know, I put on a thousand dinners with my wine. Yeah. You haven't, are you still doing those or did they like fall I off? do. No, I've done, I've done Salt Lake City, San Diego, San Francisco, and Seattle in the last five weeks. Yeah. I'm, I'm super into it. So you are the busy, one of the busiest people that I know. I always see you at things and then you're like, I came from this event and I'm going to this event and I don't even know how many you hit a night. What is your, like, where does that juice come from for you? 
And how do you balance it? Like when you're not at these events, what are you doing at home? Are you chilling? I meditate every day. I have to. I have to. I'm a, I'm a total addict to Headspace. And Andy, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. I do know exactly, but I do I do calm and I do yeah, um, calm's good. I do. I can't remember her name, but I like her voice. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Headspace. How long do you meditate? Twenty minutes. Twenty minutes. But it's amazing. It really is amazing. It's changed my life. And I used to laugh. Believe it or not, my sister, to her credit, took me to a transcendental meditation when I was eleven years old. And I have my mantra, and I'm not going to tell you. And I and they used to say if we could just get one percent of the uh, the Earth population meditating, it would be a much better place. And I used to scoff at that. And I now really believe that. I 100% agree with you. Are there other rituals or daily habits that you do or live by that you can share? Because we all want to be a little bit more like you. That, <laughs> you that is so probably much. not true, Shauna. That's funny you say that. Um, well, look, I wake up every day. I wake up every day and I say a prayer. I do. And I check in with my gratitude. And I set intentions. And then I have a really big cup of coffee. <laughs> I love that. In that order, I would be my coffee would come first. I'm a total biohacker, you know, and I, you know, I hear about these people who are, who are doing their 10 minutes of sunshine in the eye and then a little salt water and then the cold oh, yeah. shower. I'm like, no. Cold plunge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not into that. I would be doing all of it if I could. I just, I'm like, I start and then I lose interest. My only consistent thing is I'm really trying to do the meditation. Very challenging. So that's incredible. And then of course, coffee. That's not even a, that's not a, that's just like a need. You know, what's a fun Um, thing to do on the meditation? Just really quick. Uh, For several years, I had a friend and we would meditate every day together on the phone. It's really a nice thing to do. And it keeps, it kept us accountable. So just call and then just. Yeah. We set a time and just put it on. Yeah. Oh my God. I would start laughing and I would start talking. <laughs> I, would, I would ruin. You and I would not be able to do that. Okay, we would that's not... I'm not your right accountability partner. I love that. Well, okay. Hey, my, my, yeah. Yeah. Can I just say laughing is the best. Oh, and I'm so, best. it's so fun. It's so fun that you and I, we don't talk nearly enough that we can sit here and do this and laugh as much as we, I'm, I'm just loving that we're just laughing with each other. So oh yeah. You. Laughing, laughing is good medicine. I need, we need more of it, more meditation, more laughter. Okay. My final question for you, cause I'm gonna let you go. Cause you're going on probably 20 different things tonight um, is what fuels you? This, this fuels me really. I, I don't, I'm not just saying that. Uh, I was thinking about this all day. I was so excited to be able to spend time with you. Um, so sweet. No, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm not playing to the audience or, or the host here. It's, I, I learn something every time I have interactions. I, hopefully I brought some smiles to you. You brought smiles to me. Uh, I, I, I learn something every time this is, I'm just one of those. I think it might be my genetics. I truly am a person who's grateful for almost everything. The good, yeah. the bad, you know, and I be- and I honestly believe stuff happens and I get the choice on how to react and how to learn from it. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review 
on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.